and welcome to another episode of Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I am your host, Joe, and with me today is Sergeant Richardson. Hi. Uh, it hasn't come out quite yet, or maybe it will be out by the time this episode is out. I'm not really sure the timelines right now, but she actually joined us for our first uh, Patreon bonus episode about the Battle of Hogwarts. So donate a dollar and you can listen to more of her. Um, so this is part three of the War of 1812. Um, so I had recommend not jumping right into it. Uh, go listen to the other two parts. If you want to live dangerously, you do you. I'm not here to stop you. Uh, so we left off on part two uh, where Admiral Cockburn burnt down Washington. Uh, more specifically, he burnt down the White House and uh, several other government buildings. Um, he also disassembled a newspaper building by hand because uh, he didn't want to burn it down. So this is in the middle of that uh, because we ran out of time. and I didn't feel like forcing anybody to uh, listen to a two hour long podcast of, of my voice. I feel like that's something that they might put together in Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> um, so uh, since I have a new host with me here today, uh, what do you know about the War of 1812? Absolutely nothing. I'm just here for the learning. <laughs> <laughs> It's my my most reliable stand-in for Nick because uh, he is on vacation and is apparently not able to use a calendar. Um, <laughs> I actually am taking a history class right now that is from 1650 to current times, and I'm pretty sure we covered the War of 1812, and just none of it stuck with me. I'm I'm much better used as an expert in Hogwarts history than in regular American history. Yeah, we'll keep you on the rolls for our, our uh, History of Magical Warfare series. Um <laughs> So uh, we're going to start right where we left off. And less than a day after the attack began on D.C., a sudden very heavy thunderstorm, some people think it may have possibly been a hurricane, put out all the fires. Um, It also spun off a tornado that passed through the center of the Capitol and set down right in the middle of Constitution Avenue. It lifted up uh, two cannons and then dropped them several yards away and killed several British troops and American citizens alike. Following the storm, the British troops returned to their ships, many of which were badly damaged by the storm. Uh, There's some debate regarding the effect of the storm on the occupation. While some assert that the storm forced their retreat, it seems likely from their destructive and arsonist actions before the storm uh, and the written orders from Cochrane to destroy and lay waste that their intention was merely to raise the city and not to occupy it for an extended period of time. Um, This might be part of a mythos that uh, surrounds this um, that, that now it's called the storm that saved Washington kind of like um, when the Mongols tried to invade Japan, they were chased off by a storm that became what was known as the kamikaze. Uh, so we're trying to create some like mythos around this when the British probably weren't going to occupy DC. They had no intention to do that. Um, otherwise they wouldn't burn it to the ground around their ears. Um, that's just bad policy. Um, so the rain sizzled and cracked and nearly charred the walls of the White House um, and ripped away at the structures the British had no plans to destroy, such as the pet office. Uh, the storm may have actually exacerbated the already dire situation for Washington, D.C. So the storm that saved D.C. also created create like a fuckload of water damage. Well, I mean, that's pretty much what soldiers do, too. Go in, you go in to save something or to fix something, but you just really create a way bigger hole than you started with. Yeah. I mean, at least the British use the soldiers as the one thing that they're good at, and that's just wrecking shit. <laughs> um, so uh, that's right. If you remember on their last episode, we talked about the Siege of Erie, uh, where the, or the American regular army actually forced back a 
force of British regulars fresh off Napoleonic Wars, uh, true veterans, not a whole bunch of Canadian fur trappers. Um, and by the time that the siege had ended uh, and the Americans triumphantly emerged from their fort, they found out that their capital got burned down to the ground behind them. Talk about a letdown. Is Canadian fur trapper like a racial slur against Canadians? Is that? It's not. Uh, it, their army was literally full of Canadian fur trappers. Um, should really go back and listen to those episodes. <laughs> uh, well, it was a, it was an irregular militia uh, with some British regulars, uh, regular officers kind of commanding it. This is a time where can- the entire population of Canada was less than half a million. Um, and they used um, you know, Native American. They call them First Nations uh, in Canada, Indian troops. Um, it was not a good army, but it was enough to kick our ass. <laughs> but you know, uh, by the time the Americans have their first real victory against true British veterans, their capital's burning down behind them. So it's like we talk about it a lot, and it's, it kind of became our slogan because this, I think I use this term for uh, Douglas Haig. Um, if he was an ice cream flavor, he'd be pralines and dick. Uh, pralines and dick. 40, the defenders of Fort Erie. Um, so after raising Washington, the British moved on to their next target, Baltimore. Um, and for some reason, unlike Washington, the nation's capital, Baltimore is heavily fortified and defended. Um, Washington, D.C. at this time was not fortified at all and was hardly defended by a group of militia who were awful at their jobs. Um, kind of. I, I understand that uh, Baltimore is a port city and is worth a lot of money for trade. but like strategically you don't want your capital to burn to the ground um so um but the majority of their defenses were centered around uh fort mchenry which is uh very fortified and full of thousands of american regular soldiers um the americans launched a successful delaying action at the battle of port new point um on september 12th which gave the americans inside the fort time to actually prepare for the attack um, and the American militia who actually did a good job at delaying the British force actually killed major general Robert Ross, who commanded the, uh, battle of Bladensburg and captured DC and then burnt it to the ground. Uh, so I guess the militia were good for something. Um, and Robert Ross actually has a really interesting history. I don't super go into here, but I like, it was like the second his force stepped off the boat, he got shot in the face. So, yeah, it's not a great history then. Well, you know, the guy survived years of fighting Napoleon in Europe, <laughs> like fighting actual superpowers. I imagine that would be like, um, you know, surviving fighting in World War II and then like getting shot by the Taliban in Afghanistan. If you met rough. Yeah. Like bad fucking luck. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, there's a lot of years between that. So. Right. Like it, it, if it was like a, a Captain America situation where we got mm. pumped full of super serum, super serum and never aged. This should be a movie. I think it's just called Captain America. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, after a few probing actions, the British found the American offensives to actually be much better prepared than they could have possibly imagined. And, you know, after the beginning of this, uh, this war, the Brits didn't think a lot about the American army. Um, I mean, at one point in a battle in Canada, 8,000 American soldiers got routed by 300 British or uh, British and Canadian militiamen effectively. Uh, so they're not thought of very highly. So they're like, Oh, Holy shit. Look, they built, earthworks it's like uh when we were in afghanistan and whenever like the afghan soldiers showed up to work actually wearing boots oh yeah wow like, good job guys yeah impressive <laughs> we didn't know you could do that or any average soldier does 
any of their average daily work. <laughs> right. Like, thanks for showing up on time. You did well today. Good job, yeah. buddy. Except in this situation, there was 10,000 soldiers and hundreds of cannons were lined up to face them. And they were secured behind three miles of earthworks, which is kind of like an old timey trench, but also kind of like just giant berms, um, which were enough to stop musket balls and cannons of the day. Um, the British decided a frontal assault wouldn't work, surprise, and instead retired back to their ships and they decided to siege the Americans in a surrender using their cannons. Um, so on the 13th of September, 19 British ships began pounding the fort with Congreve rockets and mortars. Uh, now, these Congreve rockets, they're um, obviously they're the rockets that are talked about in the national anthem, uh, but they're not very good weapons. They like it's hard to ex- make a modern day explanation of this but they didn't have a lot of explosive punch the but they would scream when they flew through the air so it was kind of like meant to mentally fuck with soldiers i mean if one if you had the really bad luck to have a congreve rocket fall on you and die you were one of the few uh but like they they were meant to be loud i mean they would wound and they would kill but they were meant to be loud demoralizing weapons um but they would set shit on fire too I mean, and they weren't very accurate because this is 18th century rocket technology. They're just lucky if you go in the right direction. Would they be similar to like the mortars that come in on posts and just land and don't do anything? Kind of. In In Afghanistan and stuff like that? um, I honestly think those mortars killed significantly more people. Uh, But I do know um, it's kind of the same effect. Uh, These Americans, if they've been fighting the British at this point, because war has been going on for a couple of years at this point, they kind of got indolated with the sound of the screaming rocket so it didn't affect them anymore um and then and you you know but then the new uh regulars the new draftees come in and they start hearing the screaming they're going to be terrified kind of like when you're getting ready to leave deployment and um they mortar you and you just go outside for a cigarette when you watch the new soldiers like sprint like they're under machine gun fire to the bunkers yeah i feel i feel like that is something that is that can be brought to current and really similar where you have everybody running into the cement bunkers and the older people that have been on Kandahar base or wherever for a year already, just kind of stand there and watch them come in. Yeah. And, um, that's another facet of this kind of warfare is like line formations. You're, you're going to stand dozens of meters away from the guy who's trying to kill you and standing in the open. You're going to shoot at, um, the major, um, point when it comes to like training soldiers uh more militia for that matter um in this kind of warfare is um i know in the in the old prussian way which is how the revolutionary army was trained by baron von steuben but um not necessarily so much with these guys because this army's not necessarily as good but it's was to effectively control your soldiers through fear and violence to get them to stay in line and get shot at um so it worked uh, it worked for hundreds of years. I mean, things that work aren't necessarily good all the time, though. Uh, so in the next 27 hours, the 19 British ships would fire between 1,500 and 1,800 shells and rockets at the fort. Um, and this action actually inspired a poem by an American named Francis Scott Key, who was on board the Royal Navy ship negotiating a prisoner exchange at the time. That name sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, and there's actually, uh, you know, his poem was actually titled The Defense of Fort McHenry, which, of course, would go on to become the Star Spangled Banner and the United States National Anthem. Now, if you had a guess, because I, I didn't actually know this, I had to look this up. 
when did this song or poem or whatever become our national anthem? You probably thinking like immediately after this war, right? I definitely thought way before this war, like back when we actually became a country. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was actually not until 1931. Wow. <laughs> that like, this is, is post-World War One, Like somewhat recent. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's, I mean, as far as like world history goes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's actually a, a, a little bit of mythos behind this battle as well. Um, the flag. So uh, the flag, you know, he said the flag is still there. Well, the flag was shredded to pieces. And uh, the poem was commenting that they never took the flag down. Um, and there was also uh, a- after the British uh, decided that this isn't working and they pulled back, they pulled the flag down and replaced it. And uh, there's a mythos that the flag that they put up was huge um, to laugh at the British. And that's not actually true. While the flag was large, it was just the only one they had laying around that wasn't <laughs> full of fucking shrapnel holes. Um, but I like it better when they're like flying up a giant middle finger to the fleet who can beat them. <laughs> And as I just kind of ruined, the bombardment hardly damaged the fort at all and killed only 30 of the Americans inside. I'm sure at least one of the soldiers that was raising the new flags was in their mind or out loud thinking this is one big middle finger to the British. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've actually done that myself when we went out somewhere and um, it's actually chronicled in my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar. I'm pretty sure all of you are sick of me hearing talk about it. Plug. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we were told not to put a flag up at an outpost because it would let the Taliban know that we were there. Well, that's what we wanted. So we put the flag up <laughs> and the Taliban suicide bombed us. So whoops. Weird. The higher ups knew what they were talking about with that one. Uh, it was the one time in the year they were right. Uh, I'll say that. Uh, so only about 30 of the 10,000 American soldiers uh, inside were killed. Another small footnote here. Uh, one of the American soldiers who survived the shelling was a young private named James Buchanan, who'd go on to become president in 1857 and would be just an awful president and had a very troubled time in office, to say the least. He is uh, known. Um, not many people who don't study the Civil War know a whole lot about James Buchanan, but he is pretty much the reason we had a civil war. So uh, maybe the British should have killed him instead. Um, anyway, the British acting under strict orders not to assault the fort unless they thought there were less than 2000 men inside withdrew and pulled their fleet back towards New Orleans. Um, now we're going to take a little break here from the land war, because I know I haven't got a lot of hate on this part. I got mostly hate on shit that I went off script on and was talking to um, Nick with. So. We're getting away from the land. We're going to talk about the the naval war, but also I will recognize some of the things I was wrong about. Um, one, Les Miserables did not take place during the French Revolution. Thank you, Nick. Um, <laughs> that took place during a different French Revolution against the Orléans throne several decades later. So, our bad. Uh, I am one non-expert in French Revolution and even less of an expert in musicals. Hey, there are a lot of wars going on all around this time period. And especially French Revolutions. There's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if you ever, if you haven't and you ever want to study something that is incredibly confusing and you'll never get to the end of, study the French Revolutions. Um, it's great. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about the Naval War. Uh, the Royal Navy was easily the strongest Navy in the world at this point, And they did not wipe the floor with the American Navy, as one would think. Um, uh, you, know, you, you don't hear a whole lot about the Naval War. You hear uh, little incidents of like, this is how the USS Constitution became known as Old Ironsides. And actually how um, an army unit got their fucking nickname uh, that I was in at First Armored. But, uh, and that as many 
streets and gyms on Fort Hood. Yeah, and Knox, actually. Really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, you'd think that the Royal Navy, who, who had defeated the Napoleonic Navy and kept all of Europe in check, would just steamroll over the American Navy. And that was not true. Um, the majority of the Royal Navy, like its army, was far away blockading France, uh, leaving only their North American squadron to prosecute the war. That one squadron was equal to the entirety of the American Navy at the time, uh, but their ships were a little different. The British squadron numbered one small ship of the line, seven frigates, nine smaller sloops and brigs, and five schooners. Um, what is a sloop and what is a schooner? It's uh, different sizes of ship. Uh, they're back then. They had names. Generally, it it amounts to how many cannons they have, uh, how big their dis- displacement is in the water, how many men they can hold. Um, but good they're, to know. They're all really debatable. Like a frigate to the Royal Navy is a smaller ship than the United States Navy to the point that like the British Navy called them super frigates because in America just had like a huge um, frigate building uh controversy for funding because this is early 1800s the the mentality of the revolution is still in in everybody's mind where we need to keep the government very small we can't have this huge standing army and navy because they'll be used to oppress us the indivi- the individual states don't want to be involved so building this huge navy was pretty controversial at the time kind of hilarious when you think about it now but you know uh the american navy built these huge frigates um, one of them was the now legendary United States USS Constitution, who earned, like I said, earned its nickname the, uh, the Ironsides because British sailors watched in horror as their shots just bounced harmlessly off its hull. Um, and I was—I don't know a ton about naval history, but it has something to do with how the struts were built, the kind of wood it was built out of. Uh, we just built our ships differently because we didn't have anybody helping us. Our old allies, the ancient regime of France, uh, is now balls deep in the revolution. And now it's Napoleonic France who aren't nearly as big of allies to us. So we kind of just figured out how to build ships ourselves. And so they all end up completely different. Um, The American Navy actually did not end up being the main threat to the uh, Royal Navy, though. Instead, it was American privateers. Otherwise, known as pretty much state sanctioned pirates. Um, the privateers managed to take 1300 British flag ships, both military and trade ships compared to only 200 that the American Navy took. Um, we went into a little bit before, but being a privateer was a much better life than being a sailor in the Navy. Um, the pay was better. The, uh, the recreation was better. I don't know exactly what they did for recreation. They did, had to do less awful chores on board. Um, you could just quit instead of being press ganged into a different Navy. It was just all around a better life. Um, Uh, The Brits were forced to travel in giant convoys for protection uh, to kind of like scare off these privateers. The privateers didn't want to fight anybody. They wanted to board your ship, steal your shit, take your ship, get rid of you, put you on like a little lifeboat and kick you off. They didn't want to fight anybody. They wanted what you were carrying um, because it's. So did they kill people? I mean, they did. They certainly weren't saints. These are uh, a few generations removed from like incredibly dangerous pirates. But um you know, they they wanted what you were carrying because at the time the Royal Navy actually had such a uh, a complete blockade for the most part on America that the economy had completely collapsed. Um, we couldn't export anything. So uh, what better supplement than stealing the British shit? And not to mention it funds our military at the time, which we're pretty much just slapping together as we go. Mm-hmm. So 
The at pri- this point, the military or the at least the army had been um, established for well over sixty years, though. Well, it goes back to the the thinking that we don't need a strong central government and regular army. We have state militias. Uh, it, it goes back to one of the reasons that the revolution happened. Um, and that was, you know, a huge standing British army being quartered in people's houses. You couldn't say no to. That's why you have that really weird clause in, in the Constitution. Like soldiers will not be quartered in people's homes without. Uh, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound really fucking stupid here because I'm just pulling this out of my ass and I did not re- research this part. But, you know, it's like you have to pay someone and they have to give you permission. No. Yeah, that actually is something that I retained from my history class um, that in the revolution. Um, they were pretty much using and abusing everybody. And right. so, and that's why they made the law that you could not, you, you could not force somebody to quarter soldiers in your home right. and stuff like that because soldiers were just pretty much taking everything they could. Yeah. I mean, soldiers are, are soldiers throughout time. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, Nick, uh, had a little anecdote about that, 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 that the U S government completely violated that in the, um, a certain part of LA during world war two, there's a huge air base there of some kind and uh, they need a place to put them and they didn't have housing. Um, military bases look much different than they do now. And uh, there's like, yeah, we're going to take these houses <laughs> and people are like, but these are our houses. They're like, yeah, we're going to take these houses. Yeah. Sorry, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, due to massive, uh, this the massive size of the British merchant fleet though. Like even though the privateers took all these ships and all this cargo, they actually only affect about 7% of the total British fleet. Uh, that's just how big the Royal Navy was. Um, there was there was no world that existed where the, the our Navy was going to beat their Navy, especially not then. Um, so the majority of British naval operations were actually based on the blockade of American ports, uh, but they actually left New England alone. Interesting side part. Why is that? Well, even though they were actively at war, New England openly traded with England throughout the entire war. Um, this had a lot to do with an incredible anti-war atmosphere in uh, New England. And there was actually um, uh, people were afraid that New England might secede from the Union. Um, it was never really serious. Like they, they never put a bill in. There was never like people ready to go to war over it, but they talked about it because they didn't want to be involved. This is why nobody even knows that New England even exists anymore. Well, I mean, people know about the Patriots. I guess they get that going for them. Yeah. The worst sports fans on earth, though. <laughs> uh, uh, so, th- and those foodstuffs that New England traded with Old England, England, Britain, um, <laughs> were uh, actually used directly to feed the, the British Army fighting Napoleon in Spain during the Peninsular War. So that they kind of fucked over our own allies in this one because the war in 1812 would only be going well as long as Britain was distracted fighting Napoleon. The second uh, England was like, you know, this is getting kind of out of hand. We're just going to crush America. It would have happened. Uh, all they had to do is like put their foot down and we would have lost for sure. Um, but it didn't happen. Uh, the British blockade was so effective that uh, by the end of the war, most of the American fleet was confined to port and completely unable to leave. Like they just, if they would have pulled out, they would have got shot. Um, it took such a toll on the American economy that experts dropped Exports dropped from $114 million in 1811, the year before the war started, to $20 million in 1814. So 
America was on the verge of bankruptcy and had to take out loans to continue the war. How much do you think $20 million from 1812 is today? Still not enough to run a country. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Maybe enough to run a state. I don't know. I didn't run the numbers, Um, but it, it was a, it was a sizable amount. And also outside of France, England was America's number one export customer. So this, it was a, you know, but don't worry, trade wars are easy and easy to win, right? Uh, so, <laughs> uh, during all this, American, Native, and British forces clashed in the South. Uh, American forces under the command of General James Wilkinson, who was actually a Spanish spy who was raking in $4,000 a year in, in, in old-timey money for his services to the Spanish crown, took the Mobile area of what is modern-day Alabama. So um, he was an American commissioned general uh who was actually a spanish spy fighting in the south um i i don't know how that happened but it happened just so many things going on with this guy and he and he goes to alabama well uh you you have to think this is um where this is the age of expansion america wants to get bigger but i mean we're in the middle of war so uh now's a better chance as ever to drive south uh we already have the northwest territory which would become you know michigan and ohio so you might as well drive south (laughs) <laughs> I saw that face <laughs> and uh, I was Texas doing during this time. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome for your independence. Um, so no, uh, obviously Mobile is part of modern day Alabama, but back then it was actually part of West Florida. Uh, this would be the only permanent. Even worse. Right. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Floridians, if you're listening. Yeah. They have enough issues. They don't need us shitting on them too. Uh this would actually be the only permanent territorial gain that the U.S. would get during the entire conflict is taking over Alabama. So there's that. Ouch. Yeah. Um, uh, the actions in the South would lead to a conclusive battle at the Battle of New Orleans. In, uh, sorry, New Orleans. At the, <laughs> New Orleans. That's one word, I guess. Yeah. I'll never be able to fake that I'm way too Northern. <laughs> I'm just lucky not to have a Canadian accent anymore. <laughs> that is lucky. I've, I've heard your sister talk. <laughs> oh, hers is bad. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of funny. Like a lot of people from like, we know a lot of people from like the dirty, dirty South and they'll go home and come back and they sound like they have a mouthful of fucking peanut butter. And when I go home for a prolonged period of time and visit my family, I'll come back and sound like I just watched too much hockey. Yeah. You always did. You always did talk about the Southern accent. And then I finally, went north one time and was able to meet your family. Some of it's pretty bad. (laughs) You can't talk about the Southern accent. (laughs) We could argue that further, but I don't feel like chasing off any of my Southern fans. Um, All three of you. Um, Unless my dogs count, then I have four. Um, So this, if if you noticed, um, now, we haven't quite got to the peace process, but you will find out later that this battle actually took place after the peace treaty was signed. Um, with the British under the command of Edward Pickingham meeting the Americans under the command of Brevet Major General Andrew Jackson, yeah, another former or soon to be president. This I, I swear this war has to have more future presidents in it than any other war. It's like every battle involves either an officer who'd become a president, a private who'd become a president or somebody else. Um, also, you don't hear a lot anymore about brevet ranks. Um, brevet, if people are not aware, is kind of like we need this position to be filled by somebody, but it only can be filled by somebody of a certain rank. So you you're now a major general. Um, 
Hopefully you earn it and uh, you get to keep it because like at the end, you can say, you know what? We're taking the brevet away. You go back to being a colonel or whatever it was you were before. Um, doesn't exist anymore. I, I guess it kind of does as a corporal <laughs> in the army. But um, so. The battle actually took place five miles away from New Orleans, where the modern day town of Clement stands. I might be pronouncing the wrong people from Louisiana. I'm sorry, uh, but it's still the Battle of New Orleans because New Orleans existed. Um, the British slowly made their way around the city in the day prior. But Jackson, uh, it turned out, wasn't happy, was sitting around and waiting for them to show up. Jackson met the British at the Valier Plantation. While not winning, Jackson showed the British that the upcoming battle was going to be much harder than they thought it was going to be. Um, and it caused the British to move forward much, ca- much more cautiously than before. And it bought Jackson time for his army to dig in and get ready for the battle. And dig he would. The earthworks were so large that the soldiers christened them the Jackson Line, and the British would test the quality of those lines, beginning an artillery barrage on New Year's Day of 1815. They would then launch a two-bronged ground assault in the middle of the night. Uh, their attempt at stealth failed, however, and the attacks were repulsed all along the line with the commanding general Pakenham being killed in the process. The British would try and try again, armed with ropes and ladders, which kind of blows my mind. They built these walls by hand, so large that they had to use ropes and ladders to get over them. <laughs> that detail would have sucked to be on. Um, and every single time they'd make it over to the top, the American defenses would kick them right out. A British bugle boy actually uh, scaled a nearby tree to play his heart out to urge on his comrades while bullets passed through right by his head. And uh, he was captured. Uh, by the end of the battle and celebrated by the Americans as a hero. Um, Finally, after a series of failed frontal assaults, the British were forced to withdraw. And it's like something people kind of like gloss over uh, in the times of, of war around now. And they would go on to the civil war of, of bugle boys. These are preteen boys going into battle armed with a fucking horn. Why? Why? It's a morale thing. And so, also, no, so the, the, my knowledge of army drill and ceremony, like it, it shouldn't surprise me. Right. But come on now. I mean, you have to think, um, how did armies communicate before radios, bugles, drums, yeah. like that? But preteen boys, come on now. They're small. I don't know. And a, a lot of armies back then had a huge, like, demi army of camp followers. Um, sometimes this group of camp followers, they would be people who'd fix your boots, tailor your uniform, they're prostitutes, um, kids, beggars, anybody. That, I mean, through a lot of these areas, this army is the number one way to make money, kind of like now, um, except instead of barber shops and shitty fucking restaurants, it's people who'd fix your uniform. Car dealerships and yeah. payday loan places. Green barbecue. Uh, <laughs> Those are the good ones. They are. Um, and Chinese buffets. Uh, but, you know, like they were a giant generator of money. And this is back when uh, the army wouldn't fix your shit for you. If you're if your boots tore, your uniform tore, you better go find a tailor. And they were in the camp. Um, sometimes those people would give um, uh, end up having kids with people who live in the camp or their family was in the camp. And obviously you can't join the military until you're 15, 16 back then. Um, and it's a way to make a paycheck. If I if I had joined the military when I was fifteen or sixteen, this army well Yes, think a lot of people who fought in World War II were only fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, they just lie. Yeah. My, gra- my grandfather joined the army when he was fifteen. He lied about his age though. It wasn't legal. And he ended up becoming a Green Beret. 
He was. He was a Green Beret and retired as a sergeant major. So clearly our weakness in modern day army is we're not recruiting enough 15 year olds. <laughs> so we need to scrape together those child soldiers. Touche. I believe they call them Boy Scouts now, though. Um, oh, Ratsy. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I was 18 or 19 um, uh, and I was on a tank crew, the local Boy Scout troop came through to come look at our tanks. At first, I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. I was a kid. I'd love to climb around a tank. <laughs> and then I saw these like little kids hanging out of the commanders and like loaders hatch. I'm like, oh, this got Hitler youth real fast. <laughs> like, I am not okay with this. <laughs> uh, they're gonna, soon they're going to get a fucking merit badge for the final solution. And I'm not, I'm not <laughs> cool taking part in this, guys. Um, so anyway, Bugle Boy's a hero. And uh, the British were kicked back from the Battle of New Orleans. Um, after the battle, around 500 British soldiers who had been laying around, like on the ground, just got up. They weren't dead or booted. They just laid down. Wait, what? They were playing dead. I, I, I mean, soldiers aren't stupid. So they played possum. Yeah. I mean, you have to think, even though we always say, especially modern day leaders, I've been in the army for years, but you're still in it. We always say soldiers are stupid. <laughs> they are to an extent, but they're smart enough to know, like, we're all going to fucking die. Like, you know, it's gone into a little bit. Um, I mean, book- I guess everybody has their baser human instincts, but right. soldiers are stupid. Right. But I mean, especially if you like your leaders are fleeing, getting shot, the bugle boys getting fucked up, like, and you're obviously not making over this wall because the three other waves got broken on it. You're not going to take part. Like That goes back into what we just talked about. It takes a lot of fear and spree de corps and morale to keep these dudes in line, getting blasted by 50 caliber muskets. Um, and belief in what you're doing. Right. And I mean, these guys are a thousand miles away from home fighting in fucking New Orleans. You know, they're just going to lay down, <laughs> which makes me you know, I haven't heard a lot of this happening from war back then. I'm curious how much this actually did happen because it's not like they had medics running around. Just lay down. Nobody's going to look at you twice. Right. <laughs> and you're wearing red. Nobody even knows if you're bleeding. Um, so they just spring back up and surrendered to the Americans <laughs> completely unhurt. Uh, British losses in the attack vary. Um, there's. You know, a huge anecdotal evidence, and this battle has been blown out of proportion um, in in the modern day American military history mythos. Um, the Brits say only about two hundred soldiers died. Uh, I've found um, American sources say seven hundred British soldiers died. I've seen some that say two thousand British soldiers died. Um, I have no idea uh, what the Americans say. They lost thirteen people. I believe that this being a siege battle behind apparently huge breastworks and fighting people who are trying to climb up the wall at you. But this battle, while it is a victory and at this point early in um, early in American history, uh, any victory against a huge empire, which we would end up turning into generations later is an underline. So greatest country in the world. Yeah. uh, Apparently Britain was just trying to make themselves great again by retaking the colonies. But um (laughs) You know, nobody knows how many Brits died, but it was enough for them to decide this wasn't worth it. They pulled back. Uh, so, so I said somewhere between 200 and 2,000. I don't know. Uh, it was enough. It's a large gap. Yeah. And this battle became known as the Miracle of New Orleans, um, with the Americans outnumbered and the city on verge of being captured. Um, with the Ursuline nuns, along with many faithful people in New Orleans, gathered at the Ursuline Convent's Chapel uh, before the statue of Our Lady of Prompt Succor. Um, <laughs> Excuse me? I don't know. I don't know you Catholics. <laughs> Every single guest I have in the show is a fucking Catholic. I don't know how I keep doing this. Seems like a you problem. Not and they're a me all problem. terrible Catholics. 
Everybody's a terrible <laughs> Catholic. I haven't met a great one. Yeah. <laughs> well, the great ones are terrible in different ways. Uh, so they spent the night before the battle praying and crying before the holy statue, begging for the Virgin Mary's intercession in the battle uh, because the Virgin Mary is known for her prompt trigger discipline and direction of combat. Um, on the morning of January 8th, uh, the Reverend William de Borg, who is the vicar general, I'm not, I don't know, a religious <laughs> rank, um, offered mass at the altar on which the statue of Our Lady of Prompt Sucker had been placed. I'm just going to assume that that's like the chaplain. I don't know. He wasn't in the army. He was a civilian. Well, if he's the vicar general, I'm, I'm assuming that's like a chaplain type position. Oh, vicar is a Catholic thing, isn't it? Or yeah. is it uh, maybe? No, it. It probably isn't a Catholic thing because I didn't look into this, but I'm pretty sure England wasn't Catholic at the time. I think they're Protestant. I know there are vicars in Catholicism. I I haven't been Catholic in a long time, yeah. so I can't really speak to it. I know I'm going to but... get chewed up for this one on Twitter, <laughs> but I didn't look into the religious aspect, guys. It wasn't important to the battle. I'm just I'm just going to assume that this guy is similar as a chaplain because a chaplain could literally be any religion and could support all religions within its ranks. Yeah, and you know... Um, yeah, we had a Buddhist chaplain in our really? last unit. Yeah. I've never seen one of those. Mm-hmm. I had a Sikh chaplain. Um, I seen one. He was in my unit and uh, he was a captain or a major. I don't remember which. And uh, everybody thought he was like one of those foreign officers who came to train. You know, he's wearing ACUs and he had an ACU turban on. <laughs> and everybody gave me shit when I salute him. Like he was a fucking captain, guys. You <laughs> fucked up. There's only like one or two of them in the entire army. There's uh, a, a chaplain or two, and there's a surgeon who um, was the first person ever given um, a waiver for his beard and his hair and his turban. Uh, it's all they're all aspects of Sikhism. You have to be able to have those. Yeah. Um, and he was given a, and it was this huge thing in the Army Times years ago. And like, oh, they're letting the goddamn Muslims have beards now because people are too dumb to realize they're two different religions. Of course. And also, because people don't even realize that even among the Muslims, there are so many different cultures and races and religions. Yeah. Like people don't realize like the most populous Muslim country is not in the Middle East. Right. It, uh, uh, it, well, I, you know, I touched it in my book again, another plug um, that a lot of soldiers that we were with thought Afghanistan was in the Middle East. And what is that book called again? The Hooligans of Kandahar. Oh. Yeah. Um, so, uh, getting back on topic before I plug my book a fourth time, um, he was offering mass and, uh, the prioress of the Ursuline convent, mother St. Marie Oliver de Vinzen made a vow to have a mass of Thanksgiving sung annually should the American forces win, because this is a long shot at the time. Also, I know. So I've been also hated on for how I pronounce French words. I, I am a novice at French at best. And one of our listeners is a former French legionnaire from Britain. And he's like, bro, your, your French, your French is making me want to stab myself in the ears. Does this former French legionnaire really call you bro? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Um, he's like, he'll, he was in the legion like decades ago, uh, <laughs> which is actually kind of cool. He was probably in the same time as my grandpa was. Well, hello to you. Yeah. He's going to be on the show eventually one time and we'll be able to talk to him about the Legion. But he's like, oh, your fucking French pronunciation makes me want to die. Well, there's another one for you. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, and, you know, this battle is supposed to be a long shot. They're praying for this uh, victory. And then at the very moment of communion, a courier ran into the chapel and informed all those present that the British had been defeated. So I was like, oh, the Virgin Mary came down and 
stacked bodies in the name of New Orleans. Um, Thanks, Mary. Yeah. Mary, don't fuck around. Um, (laughs) She's not one to play with. No. (laughs) She did the kill shot. Turned her pistol side, flintlock pistol sideways. Uh, So General Jackson went into the convent himself and thanked the nuns for their prayers and said, quote, by the blessing of the heaven, directing the valor of the troops under my command, one of the most brilliant victories in the annals of war has been obtained. The vow uh, by this mother, St. Marie, had actually been has been faithfully kept until this day. So good on you, Mother St. Marie. (laughs) Um, So. After years of war and no one really gaining anything, because you have to think like at this time, it was uh, part of the Americans declaration. They wanted to take over Canada. Also, they wanted to expand west. Also, they wanted to expand south. They've done none of those things. They've actually failed at all of them. Um, and Britain wanted to secure Canada, make a buffer zone for the Native American soldiers or the First Nations uh, uh, civilizations that kind of make sure the Americans couldn't invade Canada again. Failed at that. Um, so nobody's gathering any kind of gains here. Uh, finally, the two sides sat down for peace at the city of Ghent and Flanders, which is modern day Belgium. Uh, they actually began peace talks in 1814. And because both actors in the room are mature adults, they quickly broke down to meaningless bickering and arguing. Um, you know, and that's how I think of most diplomatic meetings go. Like they take nowadays, they're going to take their fucking pictures in front of cameras and CNN and Fox and all that shit. Then they go into the back rooms and I swear to God, there's somebody there just to make sure they don't swing at each other. I would imagine so. Even though they're all like old ass crippled white dudes, like I still think that there's like a, a referee like, yeah, no going for the throat there, sir. <laughs> Knowing what I know about higher ranking officials in the military and say the, our commander in chief. Well, the government in general. I mean, government employees are mature toddlers. Yes. And that goes for soldiers as well. <laughs> uh, toddlers is is being optimistic as far as soldiers go. Uh, well, the British were insistent about that buffer state that I was talked about. And America demanded that British pay for reparations in the burning of Washington and return all the runaway slaves that had run to British for protection. Bad looking on you, Washington. Um, actually, neither side agreed to those terms uh, because... Uh, Slavery was pretty much banned in the entirety of the civilized world. Napoleon actually brought it back in France momentarily before outlawing again. Um, we're pretty much the last country on earth that did it at this time. So uh, I talked about in part two, uh, it was kind of ironic that uh, African-American freed slaves were some of the soldiers that took part in burning down Washington. And mother of God, that must have felt good for them. <laughs> like, <laughs> Isn't it ironic? <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, so several plans were drawn up and then dropped. Uh, so Lord Liverpool, the British prime minister, urged a status quo agreement, which uh, effectively means, quote, let's just all go back to how things were and pretend this never happened. Like, because they were never, nobody was ever going to get what they wanted. So like, guys, let's just wash our hands of this. Let's just pretend it didn't happen. Uh, this was for several reasons. One, the British demand for a buffer state was rendered moot once Tecumseh was killed and increased taxes back in England to fund their war because they're increasing taxes to fund the war in America and the fund, the, the fund, the war on the continent was getting to piss people off. Um, and also the Americans had no real points to push every single point they'd used to declare war had been rectified before the first shots have even been fired. Um, the impression of sailors was over. Um, they, they got rid of the, um, the law that said they couldn't trade with France anymore. These were, these are all the reasons that America went to war and they were all gone before even the first battle. So now they have no reason to, they have nothing to press during this peace treaty agreements. 
Um, so on December 24th, 1814, the two sides signed the Treaty of Ghent. It was quickly ratified in England and three days later was approved by the Americans on 17th of February, 1815. If you're doing the math in your head, you'll realize that the British had a agreed and ratified this treaty and then launched their attack on Mobile and New Orleans. <laughs> um, <laughs> this wasn't an unknown thing to soldiers on the ground uh, because British commanders actually ordered uh, their sub commanders to keep prosecuting the war until President Madison signed um, the treaty, which was a month later. Um, this was despite the fact that the treaty's points were already agreed on and nothing they would have gained would have mattered because it was a status quo agreement. If they would have magically captured New Orleans or Mobile, they wouldn't just be able to keep it. They'd have to give it back. Um, in doing so, they lost around a thousand more soldiers than they had to and began the legend of future president Andrew Jackson. So uh, good job, guys. Uh, Andrew Jackson was kind of an asshole and not a great president. So thanks. Seems to be a theme here in America. Yeah. Um, at least he was a good commander. Uh, now comes the question that has been burning people for around 200 years. Who the hell won the war? Um, historians generally believe and agree that the war is a draw at best, and American tactical defeat at worst. Um, the British generally don't think of the war as anything other than a small side war to the much larger and more important Napoleonic Wars that had began once again in 1815 as Napoleon escaped exile from Elba Island, which also helped press home they need to sign this treaty. Uh, it was such a minor footnote in British military history, it was hardly even talked about until recently. Um, it can hardly be thought of as an American victory. Um, you have to think of the reason why America went to war. They wanted to expand. Uh, they America wanted to capture Canada since the Revolutionary War. We invaded Canada during the Revolutionary War and lost and did that again three more times. Um, nobody gained any of their tactical victories here. Um, the only thing you can kind of... Now, this might be unpopular because while uh, you know England burned down the White House, they burned down a lot of the capital. They effectively picked and choose the battles and won them at will um, with the exception of New Orleans, but they were also fighting with one hand tied behind their back. Uh, half their army was gone. Uh, their, almost their entire Navy was gone. Um, they were fighting someone much more uh, strong, much more independent and with much more dire circumstances. That was not America. Um, and it, we weren't exactly being helped by France, but this war could have kept going on as long as Napoleon kept fighting. And it was really only when the war was over um, and he went into exile that we decided like we should probably start finding a way out of this. And that was when the last kind of the battles in the South, uh, those were, we have to try to negotiate a position of strength, uh, which is pretty common throughout the history of war. Try to take as much as you can before the negotiations. Um, so the one American victory was snuffing out American, uh, Native American resistance in the Northwest Territory. Um, I mean, it would go on, but the concept of a buffer state never materialized again. Um, despite multiple invasions, Canada would stay a British colony and the natives would continue the resistance uh, in America for about another 10 years. Um, it was framed by some as a second war of independence. Because the British, uh, because the Americans won, regained their honor that they had lost from the British impressment on the high seas. I mean, it's kind of going to be a demoralizing moment to not only accept you get defeated by who was effectively your fucking grandpa uh, in international relations, and then he stole your sailors, like and you, you were powerless to get them back. Um, 
What it did show is that America was strong and a federally controlled army was absolutely necessary, which they promptly got around doing when the Civil War kicked off a few decades later, thanks to our friend, former Private James Buchanan, you asshole. <laughs> um, the real, maybe only victor of this war was Canada, our great friends up north. Um, I love me some Canadians. I'm from Michigan. Oh, Canada. Yeah. Uh, so the Canadians defended their land from multiple invasions from a much better armed, trained and much more numerous army with little more than a bunch of militia and French speaking fur trappers. Um, now there was uh, the British had a, had a small garrison in Canada. They had uh, militia much like we did, um, but much less tested, I guess they, def- they definitely didn't just get done fighting a war of independence. Um, and at the outset of the American invasion of Canada, like we just thought we were going to march into Canada and take it. <laughs> and that ended up being so incredibly wrong. It was embarrassing. <laughs> um, we failed numerous times trying to attack Canada and Canada beat us back with almost nothing. Um, this victory actually became a culture that the Americans had after the revolution. That was, we don't need this huge standing army to defend ourselves. We have our militia. Uh, and that attitude would keep a hold on Canada all the way until World War One. So it's a pretty strong impression that it left on Canada, much more than in America, where like by the Civil War, the only thing you ever hear about the War of 1812 is like the president fought in it. Yeah, <laughs> we have a couple officers who fought in it. Like it was a, it was a footnote. But I, I assume that has to do with when you fight so many wars that effectively the small ones have, you know, get pushed to the side. Um. In fact, uh, the War of 1812 is considered the second most important historical moment in Canadian history, according to a recent poll. Second only after World War I, where other Commonwealth states like uh, New Zealand and Australia would also have a national awakening after seeing the cost that they pay in the trenches. Um, in Passchendaele and uh, Gallipoli, is effectively. Um, there's one loser to this war, though, and, that, and it would always be in American history. And that is the natives. One historian put it, quote, the big loser in the war were the Indians. As a proportion of their population, they suffered the heaviest casualties. Worse, they are left without any reliable European allies in North America. Their crushing defeat at Thames and the Horseshoe Bend left them at the mercy of the Americans, hastening their confinement to reservations and the decline of their traditional way of life. So, only real winner here? Canada. The real fucking loser here? Native Americans. Native Americans have been the constant loser I mean, throughout history, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, think, think in like, if you're going to think an alternate alternative history route here, let's say Britain gets their way and Ohio and Southern Michigan and whatever else they want to turn into this Confederacy of, of Indian States that exists and say it, 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 it continues existing. And then, Fast forward a little bit longer to the Civil War. What would that Confederacy do? Which side would it join? Um, what would it do when the Indian Wars start in the late 1800s after the Civil War? When things like Little Bighorn and Wounded Knee happen? Um, it would have been a game changer. It would have given, uh, not only would that Confederacy, uh, assuming it existed and, and survived and, and continued growing, um, it would have continued being fed by the British because that's something that they do. That's where we learned it from is having these proxy buffer states everywhere. Um, and it, it would have made some kind of defensible bastion in North America for the native Americans. It would not have made them able to be so easily victimized. Um, so 
I guess this is where we got our, our, our fine start as a nation, though I, there was another war um, with the natives um, in part one I went over, but really from here on out, the rep shit's creek without a paddle. Um, the reason why those wars happened, and also like we fought the Indians in the French and Indian War, uh, was because there was always some kind of European uh, power that was propping them up and feeding them weapons and like, hey, go shoot those people. Um, but once all that's gone, the only thing that remained were Americans are remembered constantly fighting Indians for decades. Did not end well for them. So that is the end of the war on eight, the war of 1812 series, the war on the we're year. We're not worrying against a year. I don't know. I feel like we could have, cause 1812 seemed like it really sucked. <laughs> um, so Thanks for sticking with us during our first series as a podcast. You can expect more of these. Uh, The next one up is uh, the Iran-Iraq war, and uh, you'll get part one of that as soon as it's ready. Um, As always, you can follow the show on Twitter at lions underscore by you can, uh, you can now follow us on Instagram at lions led by donkeys podcast, where I post tons of stupid history memes. Um, You can follow me on Twitter at jcast 99 can't follow Richardson on anything because she's smart enough to stay off fucking social media. Good on you. <laughs> Go me. Yeah. Um, I won that war. The best way to, <laughs> to, to survive social media is just never being involved in it at all. Um, please. Uh, thank you, everybody, for donating on the Patreon. Our podcast will always be free. But if you think what we do is worth a dollar, you can throw us one there. And uh, with one dollar of a donation you will have full access to our bonus episodes coming in the future we plan doing at least once a month um sometimes more depending on how much time we can get out of nick um (laughs) so thanks so much to sergeant richardson for stopping by again um she'll probably be stopping by more and more as uh, we do extra content um it's hard to get people in here i live in the middle of nowhere in washington so thank you for having me it's uh it's been a pleasure i love learning so yeah, and there's no better way to learn than sitting in a room full of dogs and wine and, and whiskey. Honestly, I could not think of a better way. Yeah. So uh, thanks again for everybody for stopping by. Uh, we will see you next time.